I don't know, it's funny how farther you get in um, time where I don't know if you have a familiarity with the 1981 classic Chariots of Fire. Uh, has, has anybody seen this? Like, I'm going to say, it's okay, so we're actually at a higher per- percentage than I thought. We're close to 40% or so. I, I feel like fewer people have seen it, but um, won the uh, Best Picture Award. I believe it was either 81 or 82. And um, as much as it's iconic, it's a kind of iconic more so for music, and that just does show the power of music because it is this scene that uh, takes place, the, the music that was actually so popular. I remember in grade school orchestra, we like played Chariots of Fire because it was the 80s, and that's what you did when music teachers are like, let's be edgy. And now Kalen's music teacher like teaches them Nirvana, which is really like progression but i don't know if you know this scene and uh, let's see if i can get it to play right here can you is it mute unmuted oh there it is yes they're running vigorously and i think this is this is just an overall movie montage uh and i don't know if you know the plot but it's based upon a true story of the 1924 olympics where these couple Brits, one was a Christian, one was a Jew, and they run for glory and everything, and it's this emotional thing because it has to do with the Olympics. And that's what made me think of it this week. I don't know if you got your fix of the opening ceremony and stuff. Tonga forever. Like, that dude was greased up. Um, How do I make that transition? I don't even know. That was, that was for free. Some of you were like, I know exactly what he's talking about, and you're embarrassed to think about it in church, but go ahead. Seriously, Google that stuff later. Um, so when you think about chariots of fire, I don't know if you have this uh, idea, but it's a, it's a biblical concept. That's what we're going to talk about today is the chariot of fire from the Bible. But actually, the reference for the movie Chariots of Fire from the early 1980s was a poem written by William Blake. And it was a preface to a larger poem that he wrote. And it became popularized because somebody made it into a song. But it was the original lyrics of what William Blake wrote was a poem of trying to show the people of England, and again, that's why the Chariots of Fire linked, because this was about the British and the Olympics. It was trying to give them some sort of spiritual sense, because what William Blake wanted was during the Industrial Revolution, a time where it seemed like, you know, like there were huge corporations and people forgot about everything, it was this desire to bring, for Jesus to bring heaven to England. So the poem, which... I really want to read for you, and I'm sorry about the words are long, but I didn't want to multiple slides this thing. Reads as follows, and William Blake, uh, I forget exactly when he wrote this, but it was, I believe, the early 19th century. And he writes, and did those feet in ancient time, and by the way, that beginning, you know, and did those feet, you know, is that metaphor for running, hence this whole chariots of fire motif. So it's funny, I'm giving you, like, background to a movie that only half of us have watched, but... Maybe, maybe Netflix, Chariots of Fire, will go up now because of this sermon. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountain green? And was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant pasture seen? And did the countenance divine shine forth upon our clouded hills? And was Jerusalem builded here among those dark satanic mills? And you're like, satanic mills? And that was his way of expressing the industrial revolution. He's basically asking the people of of the country, who are we now? 
Let's bring Jesus back into this. Bring me my bow of burning gold. Bring me my arrows of desire. Bring me my spear of cloud and fold. And here, bring me my chariot of fire. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. And you can see there's this desire always. And we think even though it's American nationalism that we say, oh no, they want to bring, you know, make this a country that is divine, bring God back into it. But see that throughout history, there's always been this longing for people to say, why can't we have like a society that was this beautiful ancient Jerusalem? By the way, he postscripted this with a text, one that we read at the beginning of this, and this is the King James Version, would to God that all the Lord's people were prophets. It's a story from um, the Torah when Moses was talking to the people of Israel and all these other people started prophesying, prophesying and the masses were like, shut them up. Like, they're not you, Moses. They don't deserve to have a voice. And Moses said, listen, I wish everybody... We're prophets. As we've been studying through the book of Kings, we're transitioning now to Second Kings. And a few things about this is uh, overall, I, you know, as much as we want everybody to be prophets, I'm not sure you would want to be a prophet because of what that calling signified within ancient times. What it meant was a life of uh, of strife. It was conflict. It wasn't a rosy outcome. As much as you were there to see God work and move and feel his presence, you also had to deal with the opposite. What we're, where we're at in Second Kings 2, however, is this moment where one prophet, Elijah, has finished his course and we will transition to a new one. And it's in this transition, I believe we have much to learn about um, how God perceives his kingdom. Because again, and you might be with this where for the past few weeks, you're like, all we've done is talk about prophet Elijah and we're in the book of Kings. And yet I think that's purposeful because the overall point that the authors are trying to say is that even though it was the king who held the power, it was still those who used the word of God that truly harnessed true power. So we're in the book of uh, Second Kings right here. I need somebody to read. I did not hand out the microphone. Does somebody feel called by the Lord? Who would be that one of you would be microphone reader so that they might read it aloud for all to hear? Anyone want in on that? Thanks, Larry. Would be that Larry... Oh, well, way to step up. Okay, and but you know what? We're going to make this complex at the beginning, Larry. I need you to read verse 1 and 2, and then we're going to skip, and I'm not, uh, just for brevity, y'all, so you can go back and read of it. I'm not skipping key plot points here. Read verse 1 and 2, and then skip and read 6 to 10, please. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of, prof of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. 
The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. Really, the writer of this text ought to have put a large spoiler alert at the beginning of this because it's anticlimactic, right? Like right at the beginning, we know what's going to happen. But part of this, which is interesting, and who knows exactly how the word was spread because the company of the prophets, other prophets that were there knew it. Everybody knew that was going to happen is that this march that Elijah and Elisha was on was that Elijah could go to heaven. He was done. He was tagging out, you know, get this gold watch. He was moving on. So Elisha accompanies him through this, and there's this meandering, and eventually they end up at the Jordan River. So for those of us who have at least some sort of biblical background, we've heard of the Jordan River because that's where Jesus was baptized. And usually that's what we know for, but we have to understand is that the Jordan River was even just a geographically important place um, for the people of Israel. Because as you can see, again, and this is Jericho over here. This was the, the, the path where they were heading. You had Jericho as like that first bastion uh, of where the people of God, and you might know Jericho better because of Joshua. So when they crossed into the promised land, that was the first city they went after. So they touched Jericho and go to the Jordan River. And it was really a dividing line within Israel. Um, and even today, you have Jordan to the east of the Jordan River, the the country of Jordan, and the nation of Israel is on the left. And really, there was a tension about the Jordan River because it represented the wild and the tame and what God had already brought through. Because as the people began to come out of Egypt through the wilderness and take possession of the land, they started to the east of the Jordan River, to the right of it here, And it was places where God had already conquered and they were going to move to this area where they did not know what was going to happen. So really, the Jordan River is significant biblically because it's the tension between where God has been and where he will be in the future. And that's why it's fascinating that you have Elijah and Elisha coming up to the Jordan River because that's symbolic of really the experience of Elisha. And this is what we're going to see in the rest of chapter 2. Even though you're like, oh, this is all about Elijah and chariots and fire and all this type of stuff. It's really about Elisha. And it's really about his transition into becoming the prophet that God was calling him to be. So they have this experience when they come up to the river. And then there's something that sounds pretty similar, right, That for many of us. If you know the Bible, he's like, hey, let's just part this thing. You know, let's just, let's just split this thing together. And just to let you know, this has happened before. So it's not like new experience. And some of you might be like, wait, I remember the Red Sea that happened. But you might not know that when the Israelites were coming to the land God promised them underneath the leadership of Joshua, the same thing happened. You're like, you had no idea. All over the Bible, God's just like, I'll part that river. I'll part that street. I'll part anything, your hair, whatever. And you see that this happened before. And it happened, I think, deliberately Because it showed what was occurring within the history of Israel. Joshua had this experience where he led over, as did Moses. And at at this point then, 
they cross over, and then there's a conversation when Elijah Hayes, like, you know, it's like his last, it's like he's just like, okay, God, I mean, like, Elisha, really, I'm done. Like, I'm leaving. So anything you need from me, you know, like my email password, any important count numbers, like, what do you want from me? And he says, do me a favor, I would love a double portion of your spirit. And spirit here is the Hebrew word for ruach. Give me a double portion of your spirit. What's fascinating about this is it's also like the Jordan River is a tension. This request is a tension too. And the tension is found in the concept of double, which is a quantifiable term, right? Mathematically, double means twice as much. You know, if I walk into my Starbucks and say, you know, give me a double shot of espresso, I know what I want, but they're behind that barrier. So I have no idea if they actually accomplished that feat, but at least I know what I requested and what I paid for. If I want double, I want two times. It's a quantifiable term, but ruach, what he asks for, give me twice as much spirit. That's not a quantifiable term. It's a measurable. Like, how do I give you more of the spirit? It's like, either you got it or you don't. So how do I get two times of that? You know, you can't be sitting here like, you know what? I just wish we had twice as much air in here right now. It's like, it doesn't work. How do you, and you're like, wait, science geeks. You're like, we can't quantify that, Steve. It's just an example. But here's the point. You can't quantify the ruach, the spirit. So Elisha's like, just give me twice as much as that. What is he really saying? He's just like, look, I am, and this is what Elisha is trying to say within the relationship, is that he understands he does not feel as good as his teacher, Elijah. He's a prophet in training. He's working with him. And by the way, this is, we've only seen blips of Elisha before that. So you're like, this dude's just on the scene. And the one thing we see out of him is there's this humility. He does not feel adequate for what God's going to do. The one thing he knows is that I saw God work through Elijah the prophet. If I'm going to replace him, then I want to have twice as much as that because I'm at 50% right now. So if I get another 50, maybe I'll be at his level. So um, we continue on. In the story, Larry, go verses 11 to 14, please. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elisha then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. So even though we have all these crossing of bodies of water, you're like, God just gets bored, so he's like, hey, find some water, I'll do that thing. There is nothing within the Old Testament that replicates what happens here within the story of Elijah. There's nothing like it at all. And this is one of the things that we see through, you know, the whole Bible is that there's only a couple people um, that never died. One was a patriarch, and we know very little of him. This happened in the book of Genesis. We just get a blurb. It's just like he was just taken to heaven. So we don't know much about him. We know a lot more about Elijah, but just how all this went down is very peculiar. And it's interesting in modern art, you know, you have Elijah. I like this artist rendering because he's just like, bye. You know, like he's doing the ceremonial, like, you know, pageantry wave. Like, uh, you know, like uh, I'm on a chariot. 
What's interesting is that even though, and I, you know, I know you all have spent lots of time Googling images of Elijah ascending heaven in a chariot of fire. But really, when you read the Bible, that's not what happens. If you look at it closely, Elijah's not even on the chariot. The chariot just serves as a divider. So it's like the chariot is a fire is doing, it's separating, and Elijah goes up. So really, it would be just like this... You know, like he's going up, there's chariot. It's really a big show that's going on here. And why is there this chariot fire? Because again, like the Jordan River was this division between of where God was and where he will be. Like there was that split. That fire is basically the the dividing line between where God is for eternity and where he's not. Because Elijah was going into heaven. And there's just a line here signifying that Elisha still is grounded on earth. And Elijah is going to heaven and having this, you know, his ministry, his prophetic work come to an absolute end. So what it looks like, we have no idea. I can't even imagine. It's one of those biblical things where I can be like, I can comprehend maybe waters parting. You know, I can see, maybe try to visualize that. There's a lot of the Bible and these miracles you could visualize. I just, I don't even know how to place that. Why these chariots of fire are doing this thing while somebody's getting beamed up. And, you know, then it ends, right? And you know that, like, experience where something is moving and going. And, you know, maybe you're watching a movie or just some experience where it's just louder, louder, louder. And then it stops And your ears are still humming because of the loud thing that you experienced that is directly compared to the silence you are found yourself in. And Elisha's response after seeing this is absolute grief. Not necessarily amazement. Maybe later he could reflect on it. But his visceral reaction was one of sadness. It says he rips his clothes off. He's not doing his best WWE impersonation right here. That in the ancient world was an, uh, a sign of great grief because you didn't have that many outfits. It's not like you had a closet. Like many people had one at the most two outfits. As a prophet, he probably only had one outfit. It was like his uniform and he rips it up, meaning he would have nothing else to wear. There's this huge grief. That overcomes Elisha. Why? Because he still feels inadequate. And this is what I was talking to Jonathan earlier. And some, we were talking to Emily this past week. And I was talking to my daughter about this. You have all these transitions in life. You know, like going to school, having this new experience that's traumatic. And you're getting right up to it. And conceptually, you're like, I can do this. This is great. It's going to happen. And then at some point, you hit that seminal moment. And you're like, oh, crap. It's actually happening now. And that overcomes you. I think that's what happened to Elisha. I think that's one of the reasons I love this is in the scripture is that it's so relatable. But then he goes for a walk and he has to get back across the river. Because remember, now he's on the other side of the river. Where God is home, where he's called him to be, everything else is on the other side. He has to get across, right? And he could be like, I need to build a boat. But I think this is exactly why Elijah crossed the waters. It was just like, hey, by the way, this is how we do it, right? And sure enough, what happens? Elijah is like, he's probably standing there and he, you know, he's probably like, I hope, you know, I hope I do this right. You know, like how, how, how's this work out? And I bet it was probably one of the things, it's not like he had to like wave his arms frantically, like, <laughs> like part. I bet he probably just started to, and 
I would guarantee the Lord just, he allowed that thing to part. And I think that was key to Elisha's development and understanding how he fit into things. And think about it, the circle's complete here because we talked about the two crossings before. There was the crossing of the Red Sea that Moses led the people across. And then the lesser known crossing of the Jordan River where all the people of God crossed to the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And really, even though that was about the crossing, Joshua's crossing, a lot of it was about handing off that mantle of leadership. Joshua was the one who came in after Moses. And you think you have big shoes to fill. There's a reason why people say, like, holy Moses, still thousands of years later, one of the most famous people in human history. And Joshua had to fill his sandals. And I love that the Bible even says that. Like, you know, fill his sandal is like, you know, the sandal metaphor comes through here. But that's what happened when he led the people across. And I think similarly, this is what happened when Elijah crossed over. He's like, hey, this is going to be you soon. And sure enough, after this experience, he crosses over, signifying, hey, God is still with you. He's there. Even though you don't know how that's going to happen, he's with you. That's a message I think that we need to take with us. That's the message that Elisha needs to see. So now he's got to get started. Let's read how he gets started here, Larry. Read verses 19 to 22. He's going to start profiting. Not like financially profiting, but profiting P-H, the act of a prophet, which I don't think is a natural. I don't think you're like, a, you're profiting. You, I think if you drop the G, put it, put, you're like, I'm profiting. Like, profiting it up. Okay, we'll read about it. I, I, you know what? I know you want to come back with something or there's nowhere to go, but I have nowhere to go with this right now prophesying but he's not really prophesying he's like doing the act of a prophet he's pro he he prophet he prophet like we'll make prophet a verb okay go ahead verses 19 to 22 got it i think uh the people of the city said to elisha look our lord this town is well situated as you can see but the water is bad and the land is unproductive bring me a new bowl he said and put salt in it So they brought it to him. He went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive. And the water has remained pure to this day, according to the word Elisha has spoken. All right. So what you have is he comes back in, and like the Israelites did when they came into the promised land, the first place he comes to again is Jericho. And again, we know of Jericho as like that place where the people conquered but now the people are there they had a problem their water was poor and by the way this is a picture of jericho this isn't one of my pictures but we were in jericho it's interesting because it's a dynamic mix between verdant area like there's green it has the ability to grow but then you're on the fringe of a desert so provided that you have water and the jordan river was nearby but not close enough to really solve all those those issues it was not the best place to be without water. So it's interesting, though, that the people of the town were like, hey, here comes Elisha. Let's tell them our water problem. Because what they are understanding, which is something that Elisha is coming into his own, he's understanding that, oh, I carry now on me the mantle of the prophet. I'm the guy. 
I'm the one that God is using to do this. And the people had no doubt about it at all. So then Elijah, you know, and you know, you just wonder because we don't get anything in there. Like he had to have heard some word of the Lord. It's like, just throw some salt in it. You know, like, like that'll fix it. Just throw some salt in it. Which we understand that salt water is the only water nobody wants to drink. So he's like, hey, we'll solve it with salt. Like it's counterintuitive. So I don't know if it's like God told him to like tell him the response to salt. Or if Elisha is just like, I'm just going to do the stupidest thing here and see if this works out right like salt that will solve it regardless of how exactly it was executed it works brilliantly and it's an affirmation of who he is so again this is what happens with us in our transitions true like i'm moving into something new you know i'm frightened i don't know exactly how it's going to work out but then you're like okay i survived day one or i survived week one or i make it through that first test or you know that first class or or or, or that first job task you know when you do it through you, you get that like feeling you're like wait i i I can do this, that God has allowed me to do it. And then you start, you know, again, your swagger starts coming out because then you're like, okay, I'm feeling it right here. And I think this is what we see in the transition. The very first thing that happens after his cross, and by the way, there's this whole other thing here too. I skipped the verses, but it's interesting because there's still, the, even though the people bought into it, the people of Jericho, his, the other prophets were like, hey, can we send a search party out for Elijah? Because even though he got sucked up, he probably, you know, like tornadoes can drop people somewhere, like the house in Oz, like we need to go search for Elijah just in case. And Elijah's like, guys, he's gone, like seriously gone. And he has this whole exchange where, you know, even the prophets are like, is this really going to happen? The same thing that Elisha is thinking, is this really going to happen? The people are like, no, you've got to be the guy. And we see the moving of the Lord that it happens. Great work, right? But like we have in all biblical stories, it just doesn't end there because I could wrap this thing up in a bow. No, they take like a right turn at Albuquerque and we get some of this. So Larry, let's read this one. Great Bible teaching right here, verses 23 to 25. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, Baldy, they said. Get out of here, Baldy. He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to Samaria. The word of the Lord. For his people. Amen. Amen. You've not heard that one, have you, Caitlin? I really don't drop that at home. I was like, first Jesus did this. And then there was this prophet, Elisha. And these bad kids got mauled by bears. By the way, I was like, artist renditions where I was just like... (laughs) That somebody... What's funny is somebody said, this is a biblical story that needs an illustration. (laughs) And, you know, somebody's just like, is that too much blood? Nah. My favorite is this bear over here likes to really be enjoying himself. That's great. Okay, so it's a jacked up story. And you're just like, why? What is going on right here? Let's disconnect this. You don't, you guys don't like this one? I mean, okay, well, we'll. you sure? I love this. Like, this week, somebody sent me an email. This will be your new iPhone, like, background. So when you're like, what's that? And then you can tell your colleagues. Well, actually, there's this great story. No, this is one of the reasons why, again, you look at these stories and you're like, I believe in this religion, right? Like, you struggle with this. But let's try to break down what is happening right here first, okay? So understand what this whole chapter is about. This whole chapter is about the moving of the Lord, trying to affirm who his prophet is, and how the people of God perceive that. 
are they going to accept Elisha as a prophet in the name of Elijah? Because there's much more in the Bible about Elijah than Elisha. So how are they going to grapple with this? Okay, so two things that work here. So you have these kids, and kids are kids. Kids are stupid, right? So they do lots of stupid things. And again, that's why we're feeling bad, because we're like, if, if, if I got mauled by a bear for every time I did something stupid growing up, that would just suck, right? Is that God's judgment? Understand that you have to place it within the context of what's happening right here. Number one, the very jeer that they throw at Elisha is go on up. Go on up. That is a reference between the going up of what happened to Elijah. So Elijah goes on up to heaven. So basically, they're getting this thing. And understand, remember what we just talked about. There was probably still this, this, this feeling of disbelief. Like, okay, so Elijah really didn't die. He was sucked up into heaven, right? Like, and there were chariots of fire. Like, like that really happened. So these kids start mocking him about Elisha, about do the exact same thing that happened to your master. Just go on up. So what, what's the vein in which they're saying this? Are they like, we wish you were dead or sucked up in a tornado too? Was that it? Was it mocking the idea that this really happened? And again, understand the context, and maybe I'm going to give this away, but just as we're piecing through this, I don't want us to lose this idea, is that kids oftentimes emulate the adults around them, Right? Kids really are not capable of creating independent thought yet. And you guys are like, Henry, like what? That's what adolescence is for, Henry. You're starting to do this. But that's why you wonder why people's political views usually, you know, parallel those of the parents. I remember watching scenes of kid televangelists growing up, right? Like they'd stand out on the street corners. I said televangelists, but like hellfire brimstone evangelists. Where they would stand out on the street corner with a Bible and yell to people about going to hell. And you're like, oh, where did they learn? They learned that through emulation. So, (laughs) by the way, watching... So watching Stranger Things, we just started, so don't spoil this thing. But you're just like, isn't it an ode to just bad parenting? Really, that's what this is an ode to, is really poor parenting. Because somehow, the disbelief and doubt of the adults in the community makes it way to the kids. So that they feel that they have the ability to mock this prophet of God. Second part of this, by the way, the idea about Baldy, you're like, how does that fit into this? And it's very interesting, too, that it's the very same day that Sarah comes into our church, I think, for the first time, uh, you know, without her wig on. Because Sarah has alopecia, and you need to talk to Sarah about that. Because I'm, I loved, I saw you walk in today, and you know what's funny? All week, I was like, you know what's going to happen this week? Sarah's going to walk in, and this is going to be the week that she comes in, and I'm going to have to preach about that. And I was just like... Praise Jesus, because it happened. But I think it's important to this conversation because it's coming. So see how I weave this in, and later you can send me an email. (laughs) But let's talk about this, because everybody focuses on the Baldy aspect. We actually, historians speculate they have no idea. Very often, the the people who have, have shaved their heads in those days were lepers. And they said that maybe this is some sort of hint at leprosy. Even to this day, there's no aspect of that. But what happens is that people, and this is why I love that Sarah's doing it, people can be cruel. Um, and, and sometimes kids can be, but just people can be cruel in sometimes of doing this. And I think this is the reason why Sarah owns this. It's just because she's just like, nope, I'm not going to let some other's opinion me influence me negatively. And for the long time, you interpret this. Maybe, I don't know if you interpret this. For the long time, maybe I interpret this like this is just Elisha showing, I'm the adult, you're the kids, I'll show you. Here's some bears to maul you. 
It's not that Elisha was personally insulted by this. And actually, if you notice this clearly, he doesn't say, hey, God, bring bears out of the wood to maul them. He curses them. And the curse, you might be like, okay, well, what's the difference? The curse can stand independent of the caused effect or the effect. So the curse is one basically saying, look, you know, you do not understand what you're dealing with right here. And then maybe God, you know, and that's the thing, maybe God let the bears out. And you're like, okay, is that really better? Because <laughs> either way, kids are getting mauled by bears. But if it's just not like, okay, Elisha wasn't doing it because he was insulted personally. Does that make me feel better? I, you know, again, how we bring this together is difficult. The point is, however, this. This is what the whole incident brings it down to. Is that the children were mocking the prophet of God. Which had been, and that's what the previous scene did. The water healing incident basically said Elisha's legitimate. He's not a fake prophet. He's the prophet. Okay? So the kids mocking Elisha were in essence mocking God himself. Thanks for the mic drop. Because I think that's the thing that we need to consider. Because you're like, wait, so... So it's God who lets the bears come out. Understand this. This is what happens in the Old Testament over and over and over again. We get these acts that you might think that's reprehensible. How could a God do that? Friends, this is the thing. In those days, there was the clear establishment of what God wanted to say in his kingdom. They had the benefits of living in an area with direct communication with God, right? They knew a prophet of God. You would love to know a prophet, You would love to be able to see the working of God firsthand. They had that, and yet still it was a big bleep you to the God of the universe. Seen through these kids who developed a pattern from adults who had that perspective. And you might be like, well, the kids were innocent bystanders. We talked about this in the ancient world, is that there were horrible things that even the adults did to kids. And these kids actually lived through parts of their childhood. And this bear incident (laughs) happens to them, which might seem cruel. But here's the thing that is clear about this. God will not be mocked. God won't be mocked. And you might be like, wait, I'm on the interwebs and I've seen people say a lot worse things about God and no bears are coming out to get them. This is not the proof text for don't mock God, bears will come out. But it is an illustration of the seriousness that God takes of this. Walter Brueggemann, Old Testament scholar, I've talked about this, he's written some great stuff about this, says that this incident puts Israel on notice. This Elisha is dangerous and is not to be trifled with. Not by small boys, not by kings, not by anybody, for he has the spirit of Elijah. That is the point of what this whole text is coming through. It's understanding that, look, this was uh, uh, the one that God had ordained to do this. And it was the same thing that happened to Elijah that happened to Elisha. If you mock him, you're mocking the Lord. And if you're mocking the Lord, he will not be mocked. So again... We live in a society today where that's very prevalent. Like, you know, I, I see that from people I know where they, they mock aspects of Christianity and all of this stuff. And part of me wants to take that uber personally, right? Especially because I'm an ordained minister. So it's like, no, I'm, I'm like, 
I, I double ruad on this. Like, I doubled down on this experience, right? Like, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm, like, also going to be a representative of him somehow. You know, when I hear people mocking, it makes me less angry and more just sad. Again, not fearful that bears are going to emerge from the wood and maul, from, maul them to death. But more so for the idea is that you have the opportunity to acknowledge the God of the universe... But instead, you set yourself up as that God, as the all-knowing, all-encompassing being in your life. Everything, friends, about people and their relationship with God comes down to, will we be idolatrous? Will we worship the God who is on the throne? Or will we yank him off the throne and try it out for ourselves? That's where all this is flowing. So much application. I mean, I really just want to have application on this the rest of the time, but let me go someplace else. And this was actually in a conversation uh, Larry and Dylan and I were having at the beginning of the summer talking about how we're going to go through it this year. And this was like, you know, we were talking about this. We talked about this story for like a good five minutes just because it's just for kicks and giggles. Because you're like, this is a good biblical story. And it was really within the conversation that Dylan's, you know, and we were just saying, okay, so what do we get out of this? Because it would just be like, don't mock God, bears will get you. But there's got to be some deeper application, right? And for us, just as you look at it, the deeper application has to be this. Is that there is always a continuance in what God is doing. Everybody has moments where they think, okay, so-and-so is gone right now. And that's this huge absence. How will we ever move on? Just a couple of months ago... uh, Wayne Smith was this minister in Lexington, Kentucky, and he passed away uh, in his late 80s. Um, and I wrote this just aspect of him on my, uh, on my blog, on my website, just because it was really Wayne's influence and through his ministry that Kelly and I had a chance to meet because he helped start a church that her parents went to that brought her to Cincinnati where we meet. And he really did much to make sure that Cincinnati Christian University, when it could have closed for a few years, kept going like just an amazing man of God, just an amazing minister. And when he passed away, there was this heartfelt, like it was the best thing that happened because in the midst of the, you're like, this is the best thing. Let me finish. In the midst of a like political season on the social medias where you like see all these negative things, it was like an outpouring of love of people whose lives were transformed about that. And it was funny. Somebody asked me that week, a ministry friend of mine is like, so who's going to be the next Wayne Smith? And I was just like, I have no idea but there's going to be another one. Because in the kingdom of God, there's always another one. Sounds really Star Wars-y, right? You know, like, you know, when, when, whenever there's a Sith, there's, there's, a, there's always another one. I'm going to say that it's biblical more so, is that there's always another one. I'm sorry, I forgot I left that picture up here. Man, I so want to bring more application out of that, but... There will, there, okay, sorry. What were you saying? Just go ahead. I will email that. I'll, I'll put it on my Facebook there this afternoon. All right. And this podcast will be interesting, but it was so meandering, so it's going to be horrible. Here, here's the point. There's always another one. And when I said, you know, when we were like, this is what the text is saying, right? It's always another one. Dylan, he goes, red shirts in Star Trek. And we're like, what? He's like, red shirts in Star Trek. Like, what do you mean about that? Well, I don't know if you know, but, and we saw Star Trek yesterday, and this is one of the little things about Star Trek. But 
in the original Gene Roddenberry, uh, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy Star Trek, in the television series, you know, you had the main cast. And then outside of the main officers, there were always Star Trek people in red shirts. And there was this idea that if you were, like, in a red shirt and some, like, something was going to happen, you would die. Like, that was your, your, your fate, was death, being in a red shirt. Like, I love this little meme right here. Oh, man, it's the first time I've had problems. But, you know, it's like Kirk with a whole <laughs> bunch of shirts. Don't worry, man, you'll be fine. <laughs> and then they're laughing. Like, like, I told them they'd be fine. Which is interesting because if you talk to, and I, didn't, I really don't talk to them, but reading about this... <laughs> So on the internet, don't talk to them. When you look at Star Trek historians and people who are into the lore, the point of the red shirt was to be able to show how truly dangerous like a mission was. So it was like the sacrifice of a red shirt would show that challenge of mortality to the rest of the crew that we actually care about right so it was like so the reason that we had to have red shirts die was you know basically it was trying to show how the important people move but the thing about red shirts were they were replaceable right like just google the red shirts and there's this whole like comic com lore that's about you know being the red shirt star trek guy but this is the thing is that what it signifies though is how replaceable the red shirts were and you might not like the metaphor directly, but I think it worked out really well because that is what it's like being a part of the kingdom of God. As much as I want to look at the mirror and think about my self-importance, I realize how replaceable I am. Like, yeah, what would happen if I passed tomorrow? What would, what would happen? And eventually, somehow, people would cope they carry on. You know, there might not be another Steve Carr in the future, but there will be another one who will do the exact same things and probably do them way better just because that's what the kingdom is about. You might not like the idea that it's interchangeable parts, but it also shows our place in humanity. It also, it, 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 it puts in proper perspective the God on the throne and us adoring him. Because the answer isn't me yanking God off the throne and trying his seat on for side. For size, the, the issue is me understanding my role and that I have a purpose and I will live that, but then God will call other people with that same purpose. We are replaceable. So it needs to challenge us on both ends of the spectrum. Maybe you're like me, obsessed with those things like legacy and what impact I'm having and all that. Maybe you need to just stop and just say, it doesn't matter. Like, I need to stop that chase. I need to stop con- being concerned about that. And I need to say, you know, I, I'm replaceable, understand the Lord is bigger and he's going to do that. Now, now, this is the thing I think is important. And for many of you, I know this, and this is why it's applicable to you. For some of you, you need to realize that you are Elisha, that you're the next person in, that you're the one who needs to step up and take that mantle. But right now you're hesitant. You're hesitant because you wonder, can God really work through me? You know, you're not just asking for a double ruah. You're like, I need a, a quadruple ruah with mocha on the side and some whipped cream because you need that because you are uncertain about how God has called you. And I think many of you today need to heed that, is that as God has worked through other people that you might really respect and acknowledge and, and you might never think yourself an equal, the Lord might be pulling you toward that. You need to see yourself in that role. We need you to do that for our family of God, right? 
like here at Echo. Like again, one of the things that we continue to transition with is, you know, what's it look like when life gets crazy and when Steve has a job and Dylan and Kathy are having more kids and, you know, there's, there's always going to be slack. Maybe that's what God's calling you to pick up. But then also on a greater point for the kingdom, what's happening in the kingdom of God that he's calling you to do that you are not yet embracing? Chew on that. Maybe this week, but maybe chew on that for a little bit. Is it time for you to step into something that God is calling you to do? And when you feel intimidated about that, just remember, so bad when I go back to pictures of the bears. But just remember Elisha, where he felt inadequate and the Lord brought him along to this. In the next few weeks, we're going to talk more about his ministry. He's going to have an amazing, fruitful ministry. Will he never be as famous as Elijah? Yes. But did God call him to do something very significant? He sure did. And it was key. That brings us back to this whole, the, 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 the poem from William Blake, the verse that we read at the bit, next man up. I don't know. I've, I thought about going there. But, you know, by the way, I could not find really much next woman up gear. So it's just such a patriarchal, misogynistic world. I'm sorry, ladies, but... It was there. Sports. Okay. But the verse that William Blake used to conclude that poem, same thing that I think applies to us. This verse, this verse, I think, is key for all of us. Would to God that all the Lord's people were prophets. And in the kingdom of God under Christ, this is what it's called. There's this concept in the book of Hebrews. It's a New Testament thought. The priesthood of all believers. That we're all called, friends, to do amazing things. What is God calling you to do? How does that happen? Why do we have that reality? Through Christ. That's the completion of this. And through Christ, we are empowered to do so much. His sacrifice did so much for the Lord. Not only did it do stuff for eternal destination, not only only did it solve our sins, but it recreated the concept of the family of God. Because the family of God in the Old Testament was the people of Israel. And even though God had love for people outside of that community, the entire life was around a certain people group that had, you know, you know, similar DNA and nationalistic leanings. It was just here. Today, the kingdom of God is as broad as the end of the world. And that's because of what Jesus did. Jesus opened up the family. His death did that. And that's one of the reasons why every week we gather, we remember that. So we conclude in communion this morning as we do all the time. Why do we do this all the time? Why do we do this? Because it always focuses us back to Jesus. And in our focus on Jesus, it brings us to the throne of God, remembering our relationship here. We are so not worthy, and yet the king of the universe is calling you to be a prophet. The God who created all things cares about you and your world so much so that he came down to earth. And gave all for us. That's why we remember. That's why we do this. It's all about the cross. So we'll conclude in communion. Uh, if you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to partake. Use the next few minutes to think of, of the cross. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this message. I, I thank you that your word has these empowering messages sometimes for those of us who need to feel empowered. We who feel weak. We who feel inadequate. Father, we realize that you are calling us to great things. But we place that within the proper context, though, Lord. We try to keep that centered because so often our great things aren't necessarily seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. And I would ask that you challenge us to that, that you break us of our egotism and help us to focus on doing what is good 
for your kingdom and your work because you think about us far more than we think about you. Thought so highly of us that you sent Jesus to this earth to live, to die a brutal death, Father, but that death was not the end because he defeated death through resurrection and we have life eternal because of that horrific moment. That's why we remember every week, every week we remember you, remember, remember your work, we embrace your love. Thanks for the cross. In his name, amen.